Okay, we're going to talk with someone on the front lines of reality, the CEO of a storied company that fabricates the vast range of nearly magical polymer-based products that are used to build everything we use in civilization, from automobiles and aircraft to furniture and footwear. All those products, in fact, nearly everything we use in society, are based on hydrocarbons as a feedstock, the hydrocarbons that are so vilified in our time. Our guest on this edition of The Last Optimist is Peter Huntsman, the chairman and CEO of the eponymously named Huntsman Corporation. Peter runs a multi-billion dollar manufacturing company, the kind of company you don't hear about so much because they don't make Boeings, for example, but instead make the kind of high-tech materials the Boeing uses to assemble an aircraft. In fact, tons of those materials are in every aircraft. The kind of company that's behind the scenes and makes the components that are used to assemble, for example, lithium batteries is another way to look at the underlying materials realities. Nonetheless, some of you might have heard of Peter Huntsman in recent months because he's been quite vocal about many of the big issues of our times talking on the public stage, not least in a big featured interview a few months ago in the Wall Street Journal. We have a hyperlink uh, to the interview on the podcast for you. So let's start with a history of Huntsman Corporation as a way to frame our conversation and where uh, your storied company began, because that history reveals a lot about the nature of progress in materials. Well, my father left the Navy uh, as a young 20-something-year-old, 22, 23-year-old, went and worked for his in-laws and uncle, and they were in the egg business. And one of the problems at that time uh, in Southern California was how do you get uh, the eggs from the farm to the supermarket? with having the minimal amount of breakage. So you had a massive amount. It's, it's, it's just a, the, the same problem we have much of the world today is that supply chain. Yeah. More food is lost from the right. field to the grocery yeah. than anything remotely close to what we throw away in our yeah. throwaway society. So how do you, how do you, and so here we are back in the 1960s. Uh, used to be you take something a little bit coarser than a newspaper and you put it between the layers of eggs and you transport and you just kind of pray that the truck didn't hit with, a chuckle. With, with luck, you got half of the market. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so the, the price of eggs yeah. obviously had to make up for that, yeah. the price of food and the price of... And uh, there, there was a joint venture called Dolco. That was from Dow Chemical, who made yeah. the plastics. Right. And Olson Brothers, who was my father's, uh, his in-laws, uh, who gathered up and sold the eggs. And they had this joint venture, Dolco, and they started uh, the, uh, the production of styrofoam uh, egg cartons. This is in the 60s. This is in, in the 60s. 60s. Yeah. Yes. My father was a, a manager, operations manager of one of those facilities and eventually worked his way up to become president of the company, eventually left to start his own venture making A cartons. And like most material uh, issues, I'm sure that you've seen in your life, uh, the barrier to entry uh, competition is, is simply a derivative of the barriers to entry. And those barriers usually include capital and technology. Yep. How hard is it to make yep. a styrofoam egg card? Well, it's not very hard. Turns so, out it's easy. Yes. And so many people were doing this as soon as uh, my father was doing it, making money, other people were doing it. So they evolved from there and they, they used the same raw materials and he started making salad bowls. Well, that was innovative because before that, it was all chinette. It was paper, yep. which took a lot more energy, a lot yep. more raw materials. Right. And easier and, to break and all the rest. And, and the, the, the environmentalist, when he was starting his company, absolutely loved what he was doing because you could take your excess waste right. and even 
post-consumer waste and you could recycle it very easily. Yeah. And so this was all being, this is before, you know, styrofoam quote unquote was filling up landfills, which it never <laughs> did, but you know, there's this, this right. metaphor that the whole planet was turning into plastic. Uh, and from that, you had uh, a, a, an arc, which I'll go over very quickly, going from salad bowls, you couldn't make money making salad bowls, so you melt the rims on one side of them together and you're making a clamshell. What do you do with a clamshell? Well, they tried selling it to Avon for uh, women to put their jewelry in at the end of the day. Well, that didn't go very well. How about a hamburger? So <laughs> McDonald's ends yeah. up buying Burger King ends up, and so the fast food industry. And again, all of this, what is so unique about the plastics and petrochemical industry, very rarely did we invent anything that was new or novel. Basically, what we did was we replaced something. We replaced glass, we right. replaced metals, right. and we replaced wood. And, and paper. And, and a lot of paper, a lot of paper. Which, is, which, is, which is very energy uh, intensive yeah. and <clears throat> picking up a lot of, the, the, this is before they were growing a lot of natural yeah. or old growth forests were being cut down. Yeah. Paper companies are some of the largest landowners in, in the United States this time. World of chemistry, the arc of, of the company, we made the polymers, we made plastics, we got in, we got out. Today, uh, you would see our, our materials, uh, though you'd never see our name on a, a Boeing or an Airbus jetliner. Uh, each of those planes would have anywhere from nine to 15 tons of our materials, depending on the composite. Wings are very rarely welded on anymore. They're now glued on. It's yep. a composite material. Yep. Planes are lighter. Planes can fly farther because they, they weigh less. They last longer. They take less maintenance right. because of the materials that are used. Again, the, we didn't invent the materials that went on the plane. We replaced aluminum. We replaced metals. Right. We, replaced, we made them cheaper, stronger. And that's really the world of chemistry. Exactly. About one, about, I, I estimate about a third of what we make every five years is modified or replaced. Uh, that's, sure. that's, 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 that's saying a lot. So, and that arc uh, covers the company, your company, Huntsman's Chemical, covers the arc of what happened in the chemical industry, broadly speaking. Because once you discover how to do something, we have the classic thing that's called the tragedy of the commons. Everybody else says, that's a great idea. They'll do it too. So the barrier to entry then becomes price, performance, quality. And, and, you, and there's no reason you can't keep making the product. It's just, it's hard to own the idea, ideas. You hope proliferate. But what you described implicitly was an incredibly profound environmental message because at the time, it wasn't that people in the 60s were dopey about environmental impacts. They knew that the destruction of eggs from the farm to the market meant a lot more chickens, a lot more chicken feed, a lot bigger farms, a lot more chicken waste. All those things were very well known because farmers in the agriculture industry handled all those things. And if they could move, produce half the number of eggs, I'm just being rough approximation, but I wouldn't be surprised. Feed the same market size. Yeah, same market size. So the costs go down, environmental footprint goes down, and all this is a direct, not an not a indirect, but a direct result of new classes of materials being put to work that are a unique assembly, polymers, plastics. So the plastics industry used to brag about this kind of thing. I mean, it was, it was a kind of, uh, you know, a sign of progress. And then we, we know what happened in terms of the, um, the politicization of, of plastic. And in fact, we have it today with the plastic straws being, being evil because they're plastic and not paper. I mean, if anybody's used a paper straw, they know why, 
why plastic straws are better. And if you have children or grandchildren, you don't want them using paper straws. Well, Mark, you look like you're about 40, 45 years old. And so <laughs> he's, you, saying, you, he's saying this because he knows this will make me but, feel a lot better about promoting remember, this process. <laughs> remember back in the days when, when we, were, uh, we were kids, at least teenagers, shampoo were glass containers oh, yeah. and they'd fall in the shower. the shower they'd shatter exactly and and pearl and the head and shoulders remember when they all came out with plastic containers yeah. and they were advertising not the property of their materials but they were no. advertising this can drop and bounce when it hits right. the floor shatter shatterproof shatterproof containers which is talk about a gift having just dropped at thanksgiving a glass container while holding a grandson so it was a mess but you said something that i'm going to agree with and didn't disagree with so what happens often is uh, you engineer a polymer that is replacing an existing material. So we can replace steel and aluminum with high strength polymers that can provide the same structural features and have greater longevity and lower maintenance. Again, environmental benefits, but also structural benefits, all kinds of you know, cost benefits. But what also happens is that it enables things to do things you couldn't do before. So people uh, who are in the medical device business who are worried about this anti-plastic movement are quick to point out a, a, it's not that plastics are replacing things they use in medical practice and healthcare. They make it possible. There wasn't something being done there before. What's being done now is unique and uniquely better than what was done earlier in surgical techniques or in implants. You simply couldn't do but for the polymer. So it's a both happen. So the materials revolutions that I think that are important are, are, is that combination. One is making what you already do better, taking something out and replacing it. And the other is enabling something you couldn't, couldn't have done before at all. So I recently took a tour of, of an Everton, Wyoming, or Everton Washington, uh, of the Boeing factory, the 777. So that, there's a, a, a wonderful plane. Machine, yeah, yeah w- wonderful plane. And so the next generation, the 777X, that is going to be coming out here in the next year or so, it'll have folding, uh, not just wing tips that go up, but actual folding wings. So when it goes into a gate, it'll have the longest wings, uh, the uh, widest wingspan of any plane ever built uh, that will be used for commercial aviation. What was interesting is I looked at the diagrams, how many seats they yeah. put into this. Yeah. And there's a whole row of extra seats that go the length of the plane, not the width of right. the plane, the length of the plane. And I, said, and I asked them, how much is that costing you to build a, a body that's that much wider? And they said, well, the body's not any wider. And I said, oh, so how is it that with Americans getting, uh, people in the world getting a little <laughs> a more little, gluttonous? A little larger. A little, a little larger. larger <laughs> you're able to put a whole row of extra seats and aren't you just wedging that many more people? And they said, no, actually, the exterior diameter of the plane is the so same. same. Yeah. The insulation and the fabrics needed to make the shell of the plane right. are that much thinner that we can put an entire row across. Not only right. are we widening the right. aisles, widening right. the seats, but we can put it in. So when you right. talk about, you'll notice too that the windows on right. most of modern right. planes are much because you, so you can now design. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you don't. The reason that airplane windows from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, the reason they're the size that they are is because that's right. structurally exactly that's, that's as, as wide and as round as you can make them. Right. Well, you yeah, you can't. You have to have a minimum structural strength in the aluminum shell, so the plane has integrity. <clears throat> in fact, the, the early aircraft uh, had the first comets had square windows, and it's, uh, that, that's right. And they discovered sadly With, that it was causing structural strength. Yeah. Micro crack propagation, but let's come back to so the polymer and chemical industry are in the you know dead center. It, it, the same challenges the 
the hydrocarbon industry has. You use hydrocarbons, you don't produce them, you use them. That's right. You, you used to. Did you guys, did you used to have we, a... We, we, we were some of, we were one of the, at one point, we were one of the largest polyethylene, polypropylene, yeah. polystyrene producers yeah. in North America. And we got to a point in the late 1990s, late 80s, uh, mid 90s, we stopped competing against companies. Uh, we started competing more and more against countries. That's a whole different subject. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go down that route. Yeah, you start competing against SOEs. Right. And state it's not just state-owned enterprises for the non-cognizant. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> so so the, the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises. And it's not just that these companies are necessarily owned by the state. How is it that company X in India can build a refinery or whatever right. in two years where it takes me five years to get a yeah. permit as a, as a foreigner coming into that country? Yeah. And so you, you, we found ourselves in much of this basic chemistry competing against countries yeah. uh, where they're taking it's a national policy to say we're not going to export our raw materials anymore. We're now going to export right. milk, milk jugs or something. And sure. that may sound really very basic to us. But if you're exporting natural gas at a dollar per MMBTU, and I can take that same MMBTU and I can convert it into something as simple as a milk jug and I can ship it, sell it off and ship it to the Europeans, I can sell it at four or five hundred percent four or five times that amount. Right. And that's value uplift. That's well, what we were competing against. But time to move on. You're, you're not just competing against the value uplift. You're competing against a political regulatory structure that was capital put in structure. A, a cap, yeah. but the political capital regulatory structure in India or could be Indonesia, China, self-evidently, uh, gives those businesses obvious inherited advantage. And one of the most important advantages is velocity, to, to your point. So when I've talked about why doesn't America have more mines or more refineries, it doesn't matter whether you're refining a chemical or refining a mineral. And the answer is, in my view, that we drove those businesses out of here by doing the inverse of what the state-owned enterprises did. What we did is made it harder to build those kinds of businesses. I'm not, I've never been a proponent of eliminating regulations, eliminating safety regulations, but every every industry who I've ever met, any operator, any owner of a business, the one thing they like are safety regulations because safety regulations level the playing field. Everybody wants their workers to be safe. It's one of those, one of those kinds of regulations there's no debate about. But when you come to the regulatory class that makes it impossible, literally impossible to permit in a timeframe that's affordable, the manu a manufacturing facility. And we now have a government says, well, we want more of them here because we're going to hold up incentives, wave money in front of you. Okay, I'm, I'm not on the receiving end of that money and I'm not on the giving end of that money, but it's beyond obvious that if I offered Huntsman Chemical a billion dollars, let's say it's a, a grant to build something that would, would, let's say would cost $3 billion to build, that's a significant reduction in uh, the capital cost without any question. But if I, if I was... If I believed that there was a respectable chance that my share of that capital might actually take twice as long to deploy because of regulatory delays, the cost of capital, as you well know, would wipe out that billion dollars I was given in a heartbeat. I'd end up with a $6 billion facility that was supposed to cost three, which is what's happened over and over again. And I got a $1 billion gift. So the, the question, and I, I have my own answers, but the question I would put to you is this. If state-owned enterprises have an advantage because of the integration, let's, let's ignore, you know, flagrant, um, flagrant uh, graph. Just they're just integrated, integrated in capital regulatory. They get advantages, and we have the inverse here. But we want to build more manufacturing here of all kinds, both for chemical precursors for pharmaceuticals, which are now being made in China and India, 
or chemical precursors for high value products for Boeing. What's the solution? What do, what do we do to get not just Huntsman, but the entire pantheon of American manufacturing firms to build more manufacturing, more chemical refining and processing here? What are, what's, you know, there's no magic bullet, but there's, there's, a, there's an approach, an architecture. What, what do you think it is? Well, there's two or three things. Uh, Mark, when you were talking, I know your listeners cannot see us, but whilst you were talking and saying, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with regulations and the, the bringing about safety and so forth. I was, I was nodding my head. Yeah. Yes, that is, that is absolutely correct. If, if there's somebody out there that, that thinks this is one of the great misunderstandings of the chemical refining industry, we pay for every raw material that comes into our plant. Somehow people think, well, if you're able to emit it, to leak it or whatever, we lose money every time there's a leak. Every time there's a hydrocarbon that leaks from a seal, from yeah, a plant. It's money loss. It's a money loss. Of course. So the idea that that we don't care about leaks. We don't care about waste. Well, of course we do. That, that's just that's just basic economics. You don't have to be an environmentalist. You can be a greedy capitalist, and you're gonna you're gonna want to have one of the safest, and you're gonna have one of the most environmentally sound facilities possible. Now, what concerns me when I say we need to really have a complete uh, review of of how we view these things? Think of what would happen if uh, if if it took three years to uh, to authorize the next generation of your iPhone. So Apple's ready to come out with their Apple, what a 28 or whatever model they're on now, whatever version they're on now. And they're ready to go, ready to market it. And the government were to come out and say, we've got to review this for three years. And so what you're going to be selling in, in 2027, 2026, it'll be what you developed today. Yeah. And yeah. during that three-year period, you can't improve the model because then we've got to start the process all over yeah. again to review. So yeah. when we think about things like PFOA or th some of the, the forever chemicals and some of the chemistry that, that, that we, we ought to be looking at how do we get better chemistries? How do we modify chemistries and so forth? Uh, and there's a, by law, the EPA has 90 days under TOSCA regulation, yeah. Yeah. the Toxic Substance uh, Act. Uh, they have 90 days. And that wait list is now upwards of three years for new chemistry, three years. Right. And, but by law? By law, they've got 90, 90 days. days. Yes. And now it's- They're not following three their own years. Laws. So, so this came up in, uh, I, was, I was testifying uh, yesterday before a congressional house committee, you today, um, uh, I, and both talking about issues in the energy domains, broadly speaking. But the question that came up over and over again, uh, and sort of back and forth, and it's an important one, and is what, what's the remedy? So if, if EPA, any federal agency, Bureau of Land Management, I mean, every business you talk to will, can tell you that a regulation that, that they have to meet and they need to report to a federal agency and the federal agency has by law a timeline for which they need to respond and then they don't and it's not that they don't do it in 95 days instead of 90 days so they do it to your point in a, more Years than a thousand later. days right? right and or maybe it's two thousand days what's the remedy well the remedy is you just do it offshore that's right it's what happens so the question you'd have if you're if you're a policymaker is all right um, how do I fix this? I mean, what mechanism because did Congress implement not to, and this is an important subtlety, not to eliminate the authority for EPA to have review rights. No, nobody's already, nobody wants the EPA to be weaker. It, exactly. That's not the issue when you're trying to build something is I need to have timeliness and visibility on what that time is. If I know what the time is, change the law. It's going to be 180 days just the, for the sake of discussion. That's right. Okay. But let's calibrate around that. How do I make it 180 days? Now, in, in, my, in my imagined world, in my dream world, uh, what happens is we do two things as a compromise 
Because in politics, it's all about compromise. I'm not talking about politics in a sense of Democrats, Republicans. I'm talking about the politics of creating policy. People will look at that and say, well, 180 days is still too short. We don't have enough people, so I need more money. All right, well, how much more money do you need to get more people? What, I mean, what's, there's a solution in terms of staffing and surely in the modern age, computers, magic thing called artificial intelligence. All these tools will allow regulatory review to go quicker. None of that's happened. There was no hearings about applying AI. There, you know, there, we've had hearings on AI and about its fears of it. I think the biggest benefit AI ultimately is going to be is, will be an accelerant for not just business decision-making and business planning. It ought to be an accelerant for regulatory responses. You'd think somehow we'd have a congressional committee decide, let's push that and what our compromise would be. There's a consequence of, uh, if it's a 180-day rule and 181 days plus X, you're de facto approved. Mark, how about if people that work in the EPA start just by coming to work? <laughs> physically, no, seriously, I'm serious physically about coming Don't, to work yeah, and, Washington and, right now. <laughs> and having the having the collaboration, having the opportunity yeah, to work yeah, together. Yeah. How do we, how do, I mean, I can't imagine if, if I were to run Huntsman Corporation today and everybody were still working from home, I have no decision making, I have no collaboration, even I, 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 I it would be such a competitive disadvantage, nothing gets done. So we're, we're talking, um, Peter and I are in Washington, D.C. as we speak. I live here, as, as my listeners know, you, you're, you are forced to visit here by virtue of the fact this is the seat, <laughs> the seat of the federal government. And, it, and everyone who lives in the area knows that it's the, the dirty little secret is that whatever, everybody else is being slowly migrating back to work. The federal workforce is sort of ignoring that and not doing it, not being pushed into it. You know, I wrote about this during the lockdowns. One of the things that is, and you've, you've just expressed that opinion based on your experience, We've, we've got hundreds of years of experience, thousands, of how innovation happens and how decisions get made and how problems get solved. And one of the universal truths is that people get together to figure it out. They physically get together. They don't Zoom each other. They don't phone it in. It's when they get together that ideas do well. Uh, Matt Ridley wrote a great book on this. I don't know if you read Matt Ridley's stuff. And he paraphrased it in an in, in delicate way. Finally, he said, frustrated, tried to explain why interaction of people got, get, got ideas, ideas emerge from interaction, ideas how to solve a problem, ideas how to innovate. He said, ideas have sex. And, and it, was a, it was a clever phrase, but his point was, you can't, not to, not to get salacious, you can't have sex remotely. Ideas, people have to get together. Uh, people get married, they have children. Ideas and solving problems. So getting the federal government to get the people back to work. I mean, if I were king for a day, I would say what a lot of businesses are now doing. You're welcome to work from home, like Elon Musk said infamously when he took over Twitter, but just not for me. Well, uh, there's it, a small percentage of jobs that work fine remotely, episodically. Sure, and, sure. and flexible workforce, what's going to happen now is a lot more flexibility. But you're going to still say these are the three days, flexibility aside, where everybody's going to overlap because we can't get stuff done. Businesses are already rediscovering that, the ones. Now, Washington doesn't have a bottom line with accountability. So again, this is back to, if, yeah, I think if, if more citizens knew how Washington operated, this is back to transparency and sunlight, uh, they would be unhappy about the fact they have privileges, in a sense, and are inefficient, ineffective. They want them to do what I have to do, and you have to do, and show up. Well, it, and it's, it's not a left or a right it's side not. of the aisle. No, uh, what, 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 is, what is the Environmental Protection Agency? What is the corporation? What is Huntsman? We're, we're nothing but a legal Well, your legal construct that, that's, of people. That's a, a construct, right? It's a culture. 
Exactly. And I'd like to think that people in Huntsman, our best decisions are made in hallways. They're made in offices. They're made that first of all that our associates can can trust each other enough yeah. to share an idea, be criticized, to, yeah. to, to 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 be wrong, to make mistakes, and to, to have great pictures. They they can they can know their coworkers enough that they can go and exchange these ideas boldly, and they can build on those ideas. They can collaborate. That's what makes us unique. We can solve a problem faster than our competition. We can care for a customer faster than our competition. That's a culture. That's what makes Huntsman. Well, you know, it's so when you say this, a lot of people will be, will be thinking this sounds like because I know what some people said. You, this sounds like corporate speak. People talk this way, right? This is a common, a common language of corporate environment. We we can, we have culture, but if you do research on this stuff, which is what I've spent. Rather than doing real work, I've spent decades of research on these kinds of things now. There is there is a clinical data to show that that's true. Tribalism. It's tribal. Human, we're humans. Yeah. We get, you know, our iPhones are kind of cool, but we're still humans. In fact, we know that what animates us, we know uh, that what makes us succeed or fail or be happy or sad is the same now as it has been for thousands of years for one very simple reason. The stories of history. Stories that still move us today from the times of the Greeks still they emotionally move us today because we're the same people. We have different toys and tools, but we're the same humans. So coming back to your point about culture and collaboration, what, what's what's I think what's going on now is a, a two things have happened. One is the, the one of the one of the great damages of the lockdowns was it it fractured people and damaged. It made it easier for people to caricature, have caricatures of other people because they don't have to deal with them daily. They don't see them. It's harder. It's not impossible, but it's harder to think ill thoughts of somebody else when you finally meet them. It's just harder because you find out they're like you. They're human. They have common, they have common denominators. So those things negatively impact our culture, and they will only get better as people get back together, including in government. That's right. In halls of EPA. And the, the other thing, of course, is the... There is actual physiological evidence of the difference between humans that communicate remotely, whether by writing or phone or Zooming and being in person. The existence of what are called effort nerves and, and the pheromonal, you know, these invisible uh, hormones that all humans uh, emanate. You know, when you say you trust somebody and you believe them, that comes from when you meet them. Right. It doesn't come from a letter. It doesn't come from somebody saying that. Well, what is that thing? Well, we know it's real because we all experience it. We know you get the deal done when you see the person. And that's how dating happens. But business is like dating. In fact, I've told my kids, business is more like high school dating, frankly. It's not like adult dating because businesses tend to be more. There's the behaviors of many, the way businesses operate. Uh, it tend to be more wallflowers, all the kind of characteristics that are in, in high right. school dating. Yeah, you don't you don't necessarily no. pick who you're working with. So and, and so, my plan was my plan was to talk to you about climate change and global warming and energy, but now we're talking about corporate culture, which is really important because again, a lot of what I wrote about in my book is how technology affects um, social constructs. So, a corporation is a social construct that we agree on, and the community is a social construct. And technology can improve the social constructs, but when the technology is new, it often fractures it, which is a little bit what's going on now, I think, because of social media and the COVID lockdown sort of amplified that. Well, I'm, uh, and I'm determined to be, because my podcast is called The Last Optimist, I remain optimistic that what's going to happen next is we, we're, corporations are beginning to realize they can't operate that way. 
they're having some trouble getting people to, to, to recognize it. But I think it, I think most employees do know that their life is better when they're at work. I had uh, one of my uh, one of my sons told me the big difference. He said between remote work and when you're working in an office together is a very practical one, which has huge implications for productivity of the business. But it's a very practical one: is you get to know somebody and day-to-day worker, and you've got to go home, your child's sick, or you have a, a doctor's appointment, whatever. And your coworker who knows you and likes you because they see you, and they're, they're not just Zooming with you, uh, you're a, a pixel on a screen. And you say, can you, can you help me out here? I need, I, you know, tomorrow I got to go do X. Can you, you pick, up, pick up, do this for me in the office? They'll say yes, because they like you. Not because it's their job, not because they have to, because they'll, they'll just say yes, instead of not culture. getting it. That's, right. That's culture. Oh, but yeah. if you're just... A tailorism, which is the dawn of trying to bring sort of clockwork precision to a business, you would say, if you're just a naked capitalist, you would say, that's a great thing because now the productivity of my business doesn't suffer because somebody has left. They've, if you amplify that by thousands of people, it's a very powerful thing. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that that's in your culture. And I can, I can attest to the fact when I visit businesses, you can, you can see and smell culture when it's working well. You could just, you, making it work well is the, is the magic, but when it's working well, you can feel it when you're in a business. Well, I, I, again, Huntsman, Huntsman, we're far from a perfect company, but <laughs> one, thing that, one thing that I truly pride ourselves on is, is look, we're, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna succeed, we'll succeed because we've all done it together. And, yeah. and it, it, I know it sounds like corporate speak, yeah, but I'm a greedy capitalist at the end of the day. I wanna create shareholder value. And I'm gonna do that by getting the best minds, best creativity, the best people collaborating together. Well, this, well, this is to, go, all about. To, to the political philosophy of capitalism. This is where we we're actually have a great debate going on now because there's a, this affection for socialism. If, if the idea is there's this cartoonish bifurcation that if you're a socialist, literally a socialist, it's because you like people, the capitalists don't. Even if you, even if you were to say being cynical, capitalism only works if you're sociable. If you make your, to your point, you make your business function. You can't make, can't make a business succeed well in a dictatorial fashion. It's, those are yeah. the exceptions, not the rules. But I'm determined to talk about a related subject because the fact that you were in the Wall Street Journal talking about a contentious issue that's emotional for people, which is the energy debate, and the climate. Uh, the climate debates that are going on, and where, where what you've said, and in in, in again, I'll link the the interview to the listeners. I'm trying to bring a sense of reality, what I call preaching the gospel of reality about energy, not about uh, the politics of it, just the facts. And when I do those things, what you what you invariably bump into are, are a high high degree of emotional response uh, in in the energy and climate debates. You get accused of being not a climate denier. There's a new phrase now, climate solutions denier, that somehow you're denying that there's a solution. Uh, it's truly surreal. I mean, I, I mean, I have, I've been involved in debates in my life in the public sphere for a long time now. But re- this is really epic, um, epic uh, challenge and epic disconnect from reality, what people are saying that they want to have happen and what's possible. So I'm intrigued by what motivated you frankly, to be frank in the public space about it. Because so many uh, CEOs of corporations that are impacted by this, that are in the energy using and hydrocarbon business, they're silent. I mean, they're not, they're public companies too. They have shareholders. Um, they have responsibilities, but they're, they're silent. They're not talking. Not oh. saying anything publicly. I, I, 
anything I say will, will be about myself. I, I don't want to disparage or try to judge any of my, my cohorts. And, well, and, no, I'm not, and I'm not naming names because no, I, don't think it's, I. I don't think it's fair. But by and large, it's true. But I, you're, you're I a care, minority speaking I care out. about this stuff. I, I care about the environment. I care about regulation. I care about industry and, and society at large. And as I look at that arc, uh, I think that that over. I know this will offend some of your listeners, but I, I think that <laughs> it's if, hope so. No, if, <laughs> if, if you if if I look at perhaps one of the most destructive forces in the last fifty years that I've been watching these things, been part of the workforce and so forth, and just been a teenager through it, um, literally is is the, is the the environmental movement. I yeah. mean, think what think where we would be today, Mark. Had we not abandoned nuclear technologies, fissionable technologies in the 1960s, and where did we go when we couldn't build the nuclear plants? What did we revert to? We actually went backwards to coal. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's one of the few times in technological history when you know we're, we're constantly doing things better yeah. and better and better. Here we we invent nuclear fission, and we could have we could have taken a. a, a 17th century combustible fuel coal. We <laughs> dig it out of the ground and we we replaced the nuclear future that otherwise could have been that with what we we're doing hundreds of years before, digging and rock we, out of the ground and, and burning. And you it. and you correct, you can lay at the feet of the environmental movement, the extreme environmental movement. That's right. Which is distinctly different than not putting mercury in water. I mean, this is this, totally this cartoonish yep. Yep. Uh, characterization. It you can lay at the feet the destruction of the U.S. nuclear industry to the extreme environmentalists. For what you don't know about me is that I was, for seven years of my life, after Three Mile Island, on the road defending the virtues of nuclear energy. I was at the accident at Three Mile Island for the week of the accident. And so I was a nuclear bull, a nuclear defender. And when I say I haven't seen a debate as vicious and emotional until now, it was since then that I was called a baby killer. People screamed at me when I gave lectures and speeches about nuclear energy. It was incredibly, I mean, uh, unbelievably emotional, uh, a lot like the climate debates. Um, the environmental movement was full on board, shutting down nukes, and they essentially succeeded. And I, I wrote a report in 1999 uh, with a finance firm in New York to make a forecast for a client about when the next nuclear power plant would be built in America. This was already, keep in mind, 20 years after we stopped building nuclear plants. And I said, 20 more years. And I was right. And, and, and not because we shouldn't be building them, but because of the destructive messaging that the, the extreme environmental movement put in play around nuclear energy then. So I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, so what's going on now is that movement and the same people, by the way, I'm debating that I'm debating literally the same people in many cases who kill the nuclear industry are now targeting hydrocarbons. They think it's not just coal they want to go after because to come back to your, your chemistry, we can burn coal clearly. It's actually technically possible to have a near zero emissions coal power plant. It just makes them expensive. Okay, get better chemistry. So coal is going to have long legs but just because it's cheap and it's, as you as you doubtless know, the amount of coal plants being built globally and in China in particular is epic. They're just building them. China's building one big coal plant a week still and they built for another six years. One a week. I was commissioning one a week. I says, boom, it's incredible. But we abandoned nuclear energy because of a toxic uh, narrative. I, it's, it's destructive. So, and, and we didn't we, outlaw it. No. How did we kill it? Oh, money. We it permitted, delays. It, per, yeah, permitted delays. to death. So it, it, it's got now it. a 20-year runway. Which is exactly why I asked you, what's the solution? There, there has to be a political solution that has to be enshrined in law that 
once we agree we should try to do something, most Americans think we should have refineries, not zero, we shouldn't import everything. There has to be a structure with consequence to the agencies, or they de facto have permitted you. I mean, other than committing, you know, breaking the law, doing mal- things that are genuine malfeasance, those are easy to track in our, in our culture. But a permit should be issued in the time frame the government says it's going to issue. So when I look at the broad things, certainly, I, I look at where we could where we could otherwise have been today. Imagine yeah. a society where virtually no coal today. The other thing that I, I, I ask and I just I really struggle with, Mark, is uh, is an idea that if you really cared about manufacturing, best technologies, best environmental standards, making something with the, the lowest carbon footprint, the lowest wastage and so forth, you would argue to produce everything you humanly possibly could in the chemical steel class industry in the United States. Yeah. Where it can be taxed, right. it can be regulated. Exactly. It doesn't matter what your last name is or how wealthy you are. You break environmental laws in this country, you're going to be you got a problem. You, got you can do that in other places around the world where it's, it's actually be incentivized, where the, the objective is going to be how much foreign currency can you bring in? That's the objective of our facility. It's not how efficient and how clean it can be. So I, I think, I mean, somebody who's genuine, this idea that we're going to outsource our, our carbon emissions to, and send which, it to China, send which it we to are. India, which is what we're doing it some degree. Europe is doing it. Oh, it's. In, yep. in, in massive, there's yep. a deindustrialization taking place in Europe today that I fear they will not recover from. They are, they are deindustrializing. And in fact, the French government, to, to their credit, is the only government in Europe that commissioned a study, uh, I think it's been two years ago, now, 18 months ago, to look at the extent to which they were offshoring their carbon dioxide emissions. So what they decided to do was to count up the carbon dioxide emissions associated with the imports. And because they've been bragging about the fact that France has had, had been a slow decline in CO2 emissions. And they're, as you know, 75% of their electricity is nuclear. I was going to say, they're the only people who and, do that because of their nuclear footprint. And they've been declining. But when they actually looked at what they were importing, what they discovered is that their actual per capita CO2 emissions have been rising for 20 years. Because the goods that they're buying have embodied CO2 because they're manufactured in China on a coal-fired grid which is what we're doing with our electric vehicles, by the way. We're importing all the chemicals and the polymers and the ethylene carbonate from China, which has its grid is two-thirds coal-fired. It will be for a century. But I have a, So my magic bullet, to, and you and I are on the same page, so it, what we should want to have is more of it here. Not all of it, because the Adam Smith uh, maxim is correct. Some people will be better at other things. Sure. But we're going to have a lot more of it here. Uh, and we don't have to have... A, a deindustrialization policy, but you have to ask yourself, what are the key ingredients? And it's pretty easy to my mind. It's a trifecta, just three things. You have to have low cost, reliable energy because manufacturing is energy intensive. And if you, what if you do to make it expensive or unreliable, which is what's happening in Europe, they lose industry. You have to have certainty in the regulations. Doesn't mean you have to have no regulations. You know what I mean by That's certainty. Right. You right. just tell me the timeline, stick to the timeline, and we can live with that. So you need certainty in reg- regulations. And then you have to have a, and so this is the, the easy giveaway for somebody. I worked for Ronald Reagan. So I, I'm branded, even though I'm, a, though I'm a Canadian, I'm branded as a fiscal conservative. You have to lower taxes. Low taxes, bus- business taxes, and you, you don't have to respond to this because you're a publicly traded business, but business taxes are a tax on the consumers, the product of the business. Businesses don't pay taxes. Everybody that buys their stuff pays taxes. 
Well, that applies to a carbon tax. A but, let's, cap I, on I just steroids. Sure. We, we on steroids. Whenever you hear the word carbon tax, I think it's, it's an everything tax. It, it's all it, it is. So and you yes, have, I'm going to pass it on to the to exactly. Consumers. So that's, that's what I'm in business. So if you want, if you want, you do those three things, you'll get more manufacturing here. And we should end on talking about this note. So I I wrote a piece several years ago about the carbon tax and trying hard to put a stake in the heart of it. There are a group of Republicans and a group of conservatives and a lot of businesses who think that if they agree to the carbon tax, that's their get out of jail card for de dealing with the politics of climate change. First of all, maybe it is. I don't know politically if it would be. I don't think it would be. I think it's naive to think that. But your point is exactly correct because everything, um, everything in society directly or indirectly uses hydrocarbons, everything, not some things. There's nothing that exists that a carbon tax is a tax on everything. You're absolutely right, which makes it the most regressive tax imaginable. It's terribly regressive. And the magnitude of tax you need to change behavior, which is their goal, is astonishing. You'd have to increase the price of oil to at least two or three dollars a barrel to have impacts that they, they claim they would want. So I, I, we, we have to, uh, off channel, figure out how to mount a campaign to put a stake through the heart of the carbon tax that's coming. The Senate has got this carbon border adjustment mechanism following Europe. And that is, they want us to be on parity with Europe. What that means is they want, they want to raise the cost of everything in America, just like Europe is doing. And the last I checked with Europe, this is the back of the envelope, uh, was around the equivalency of around uh, 15 to $20 a barrel. That's what it comes down to. So, so the current proposal. The current proposal on, on, uh, on carbon taxes is 100. So let's, whatever it was per, on a per ton basis yeah. was equivalent of. So right. if you think about $20 per ton, uh, or excuse me, $20 per barrel, gasoline today roughly at $80 per barrel. Think of your price of gasoline going up 25%. Your so home heating oil. People, people don't like that. But people here, don't like but that. Here, it's worse than that, though, because it's ubiquitous. It's not just gasoline going up. Again, to your point, it raises the entire cost of all services and goods in the United States. And now whether or not businesses pass it on to the consumers, it means the businesses are less profitable, which means they don't grow as fast. They don't pay wages as high. So everything is destructive. But worse than that, once the mechanism is in place, once the, so some people will be hearing you say 15 to $20 a barrel, you know, okay, it, oil's $80 a barrel, it's a mere 25% increase. Excuse me, you know, the, our current president emptied the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to avoid a $20 barrel increase in oil last year. That's what it was done for, and it worked, because if you put a million barrels per day more in the market, you can keep the oil prices from going up, and it worked. You set aside whether he should have done it. I don't think he should have, but it worked. It, it did. So here we're going we're gonna to do the inverse. We're going to, but worse than that, once you put the law in place, once there is a carbon tax at only 15 to $20 a barrel, no one believes it'll stay there. There's no chance once the tax is there that they're not going to raise the rate. So, Mark, you bring up, I think, a very interesting point. I was reading recently the literature from an environmental group. I don't want to mention any uh, group's names in specifically, <laughs> but it sounded very close to green peas. And we, we had, and, and you, you noticed it in, on one of their, uh, their website, Opposition to nuclear, yep. opposition to coal. Yep. My first question is, what do you replace that with? No. Can't do it with wind and solar. But we make the raw materials for wind yeah, and solar. Yeah. <laughs> you would need to be building literally scores of new chlorine. Think of this one product, chlorine facilities. Right. When's the last time a chlorine facility was built from scratch? The United States, you're talking decades ago. Yeah. Anyway, beyond, beyond right. all that. And then the third thing that I found most troubling, we need to be looking at a new economic model. 
And so when you start talking about carbon taxes, when we start talking about an ESG platform where I'm going to loan you money if you're making crude oil out of a certain hole at this location, but not out of this location, and we can can fund as a bank Middle East regimes and and trading companies that are keeping Middle East regimes going or or Venezuela or whatever, but we're not going to support hydrocarbon production in Texas or Oklahoma or fracking. uh, So you're deciding... you're deciding the Sovietization of the economy, because when statists decide how to allocate money that way, that specifically, which is what's literally being proposed, it's not you making it up or me making it up. That's and I, I use that word deliberately. It's a Sovietization of the of the economy of the United States, and Europe is gone not going down that route, and it's destroying its economy. And they know, and they know they are. And I think there's some chance Germany will reverse. By the way, I'm you're I, I'm. Cautiously optimistic because of several things that have happened recently, and I think I think they may reverse it. Um, the fact first that they're burning coal the, the, will you, tell you, know, you something. You're, you're, <laughs> you might be correct, Martin. My problem is my concern is they may reverse it, but it may be too late. It may be too late. You could be right. You, you don't take it. You don't take a, a chemical facility, shut it down for oh, three can't. or four years, and then restart it. Well, you, and that's what's that's a problem they're going to have. If if they shut them, I agree. If, if they shut them down, if BASF mm-hmm. leaves like they said, yep. it's not coming back. That's right. It's just not. And you close a glass plant for an hour, as you know, you know, we afford glass. You're done. It's never coming back. That's right. Steel mills. Easier to rebuild. Well, you fact, as you know, you build these kilns to run 20 years. You run them 24 seven for 20 years and then they're dead and you build a new one. But if you shut it down prematurely, it's dead. That's right. There's no restart. But the fact that Sweden did what it just did, uh, went full nuke and they took the word. They, they took the word renewable out of their, their national law. It's not renewable energy anymore. They want to have low carbon energy. So they're going nuclear, which means it'll go more, more natural gas. The fact that Germany and France and other European nations, particularly Germany and France, are now reclassifying natural gas as part of the transition. This is political speak for buying time. Well, I'll, I'll take that because it puts us a, a decade away from irreversible mistakes. But I'll come back to, to the carbon tax. The carbon tax fight is really important right now because if our government implements a carbon tax, it's a full-on capitulation to a whole new vector for a profoundly regressive tax, and they won't stop it at fifteen to twenty dollars a barrel, and it will take us down the path of Europe of deindustrializing, and then in fact it will be China making all the cars, and it will be India making the iPhones. It won't, we won't be doing it here, and nobody's going to come here for vacations like we like to go to Europe for vacations. I mean, we don't have an Eiffel Tower. I mean, the flood of people to Europe is because it's an ancient culture. We're young. I mean, <laughs> hunters will come here. So oh, I, we'll be- <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the Woodlands, Texas, where I live, we've got buildings that go all the way back to the 1970s, 1972, Mark. You know, you got some old Great stuff. era. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's, a, you know, it's funny. We, we have a house in Maine that was built in the mid-1700s. Which is old by American standards, especially. Oh yeah. But by European standards, <laughs> it's, a, it's a subdivision. I've been in I've been in houses in Sweden that were built in the seven hundreds. You know, it's a stone buildings in downtown Stockholm. It's crazy. Anyway, this has been um, this has been uh, good. I will, will you know I, in my podcast I always tell people at the end uh, to send comments and questions and objections, and I do get some. People will send emails, emails, and so I'm going to invite them to do that again because we we uh, we went into some zones might make people have a reaction, might trigger some people. I hope so. That's what what these discussions ought to be doing. Exactly. It's great, um, Peter. Thank you for for doing this and agreeing. Thank you very much. And thank thank you very much for being a a loud 
and a, a, uh, a powerful voice in reality. We, unfortunately, I, I, I'm afraid that we, as a society, we forget how things are made. Oh, we yeah. somehow think I can just plug something in the wall and I get electricity. It comes yeah. from a plug. Or the idea that electricity comes from a battery. Yeah. Uh, batteries do not produce electricity. Exactly. I mean, just, just the basic concepts of how things are made. We, we, that's, that's what makes up our middle class. Yeah. That's what makes up the yeah. wealth of nations. And it, we, we need more people out there advocating for oh, those things. I'm glad you're out on the stump too. Even you have a business to run. I don't, I don't have to run a business. So I have, I have in theory time to preach the gospel of reality. It's great to have you join the club. Thank, thank you. Well, that's it for this episode and another excellent guest. And thanks to Peter very much for agreeing to join, join me uh, in one of his sorties into the belly of the beast, Washington, DC. As always, I'm reminding you that if you're enjoying these podcasts, please spend a few minutes to give us a rating, not just favorable, but effusive. And as always, I'm happy to take questions to frame a future episode to answer uh, queries, objections. And I've been seeing a lot more of those lately. Keep them coming. Once again, until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Optimist.